Welcome to Beringa's Energy Innovators podcast, bringing you a series of thought-provoking and current conversations with industry leaders, where we discuss the transition, transformation, and innovation in energy markets. On today's podcast, we have myself, James Constable from Beringa Hosting, and I'm joined by Mike Reynolds, the Managing Director of Vattenfall Heat, and Stefan Gebski from Beringa's Energy and Resources Practice. We discuss the challenges of heat decarbonisation and draw parallels with the transport and power sectors. We discuss some of the market mechanisms that currently support heat decarbonisation, and we suggest what needs to change in the market to drive the heat agenda forward that would accelerate us on the path to net zero. Enjoy the podcast. Mike, Stefan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Mike, could you just kick us off by giving us an intro about yourself, Vattenfall, um, and what you've been up to in the market? Thanks, James. Um, great to be invited. Thank you. Uh, Mike Reynolds, I am the Managing Director of Vattenfall Heat UK. Vattenfall is the fifth largest energy company in Europe, a Swedish state-owned utility. Uh, we've got a, a core purpose and a mission to deliver fossil-free, climate-smarter living within a generation. It sort of drives everything that we do. Um, and we're also the largest operator of uh, district heating in, in, in Western Europe, uh, with 1.8 million customers served across our networks. And I think we have over 50,000 new customers every year, which is, you know, for context, more than the entire UK market adds every year. So fast growing business uh, in district heating. Um, we set up in the UK to deliver smarter, climate friendly district heating. Uh, the market's been going big and uh, we decided 2018. There was the beast from the east was in town in March 2018 and we set up a heat business um, and uh, since then we've, we've gone from strength to strength. Uh, we've, we've won some projects, we're into delivery and construction at the moment and, uh, and really starting to ramp up now as we go into our third year. Great, thanks Mike. Stefan, could you give us a bit of an overview of yourself as well please? Hi James, thanks for having me. So Stefan Gebski, I'm a director in our Bringers Energy and Resources Practice. Um, Guess what I do mainly is help um, organizations in the energy industry to clarify their strategy and to help them deliver that strategy. So I mainly work with energy companies like Vattenfall and we've been working with Mike um, over the last year or so um, to focus on markets, um, customer propositions, organizational and operating model um, and helping deliver what they want to deliver. Um, so in addition to energy companies, also a lot with developers, investors, um, and increasingly um, users of energy, um, so large corporates in particular who have set themselves um, relatively ambitious uh, decarbonisation targets, so net zero by a certain date. So we've been working with them to, again, uh, clarify the strategy and specifically how to, how to actually execute that, because often it's um, a myriad of solutions across power, heat, transport, um, and uh, often heat is the, is the issue that they struggle with the most. So thanks very much for having me. Great. Thank you both. Thanks both for coming on. This is going to be a, a very interesting one. Today we're going to be having a conversation about decarbonisation of heat. Um, as, as you were just saying, Stefan, that, that isn't something um, that's necessarily talked about enough. It's definitely a massive challenge and a very difficult one. Um, so I think it would be great um, if we can give our listeners an overview of the heat market, you know, what's, what's going on in, in that space at the moment. The headline target the UK has set is um, net zero um, by 2050, which is a legally binding target. It requires decarbonisation across um, uh, power, transport and heat. I think 
power is the one that's probably seen the most progress and the most government support. I think Mike, you probably agree with that. It's probably one where now we've seen the most progress in terms of decarbonisation. Transport is now um, on the journey uh, and probably likely to accelerate pretty quickly over the next um, next decade. Um, heat is 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 one where there have been some gains through um, efficiency, um, but ultimately I think it's probably lagged the other two in terms of real tangible progress. Um, I think that the sort of main ways of decarbonising heat, it's not easy. So some of the main ways and keep your thoughts are, you know, getting a clean fuel in place of um, a fuel that um, is a fossil based fuel. So gas and, and diesel. Luckily, we're not quite on diesel anymore. We're, we're now more of a gas economy. Um, but cleaning the fuel is one one way. Heat pumps is probably the other way. So um, devices in buildings that are that rely on uh, clean, renewable electricity to heat the home or heat a building and district heating, which is obviously the area that um, Vattenfall um, know the most. I, those are probably the kind of three main ones. Um, keen, keen for your thoughts, Mike, on um, where you see um, probably the focus needing to be and, and where you guys have sort of started off, I guess, because district heating has probably been, been the main one. Yeah. Can I can I leap back in time into what you just said, actually? Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> pick up on something, because one of the things I think is very interesting about decarbonisation is um, whilst I don't want to say that decarbonising power is easy, it's definitely not. I think, you know, if we've gone back 20 years, the idea of having the capacity we have in offshore wind today would be mind blowing for a lot of people. Um, and it's been remarkably successful, but it's very much out of sight, out of mind. And interesting, you look at where solar PV has, uh, has has rolled out in rural areas and onshore wind, actually the challenge with onshore wind. You've got a very similar challenge, I think, to what we're going to talk a little bit about in heat in a minute. Um, and, and decarbonisation has happened where people don't need to see it, uh, I think would be my observation of, of the trend we've seen so far. Transportation and heat are more invasive. Um, they're in your home, they're in your lifestyle, much more than a, a wind farm replacing a coal, coal generating plant is. Um, from a heat decarbonisation point of view, um, I mean, for me, it just seems very ironic that, that we are still heating our homes the way that the, that the cavemen did. So there's a fundamental thing, which is, you know, that doesn't sound very efficient. So I, I think w when we talk about decarbonisation of heat, what I think Battenfall is very keen to do is to look at the most efficient and the most cost effective, like whole life cost way of, of decarbonising heat. But district heating and, and heat generally needs to start to be much more local. It needs to be about the environment that you live in and the waste heat sources in those environments and recovering that waste heat and then delivering it to Stefan's uh, nice house so that his uh, his son can be warm watching Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, that's, um, that's very helpful. And then just to, just to kind of frame uh, heat in the challenge a little bit more, I guess, Mike, because, um, you know, heat is actually probably the biggest single contributor to certainly the UK's um, carbon emissions at 37% of emissions um, last year. And that's more than both of the power sector um, and and transport on its own. The issue we have is we are very locked into a, a gas system, um, and yeah. you know gas boilers essentially contribute. You know, that's eighty five percent of um, of the system is basically reliant on gas. We're very much locked into gas, and I think um, what's interesting even now with um, the government's recent sort of announcement around the ten point plan is that there still seems to be a lack of kind of tangible way forward on heat. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think we're still lacking that. So what, what we heard is, um, you know, the, the the ban on new diesel and, and petrol cars to 2030. So that's a clear line in the sand, um, you know, coupled with investment in electric vehicles. So again, transport has that sort of tangible, um, you know, government sort of mm. 
backing almost to, to mm. decarbonize. With heat, I think we heard something about hydrogen potentially powering a town in, in the future and 600,000 heat pumps a year by yeah. 2028. So not a lot of detail. And I think that's another challenge is that the government still isn't clear about what the roadmap looks like. No, and, and, and for context, 600,000 heat pumps is less than half the number of boilers that we replaced in the last 12 months in the UK. 1.7 yeah. million boilers were replaced in the last 12 months. So, you know, it's scratching the surface, frankly. If you were to take a step back and, and sit on the, the politician side of the table, which I do think is really important here, um, there's an unbelievable amount of noise about electric vehicle on the market. Uh, it's, it's, it's considered by consumers to be a hugely positive trend. And one of the biggest things that's driven that is, is the debate not actually interesting about climate change, which um, I think a lot of people do care about, but, but it's considered to be, for a lot of people, sort of tomorrow's problem. Um, the thing that's driven the, the drive on electric vehicles has been air quality. Um, and certainly if you, look at, if you look at London and you look at the, the tightening of air quality restrictions, and it's happening across cities up and down the UK, I think the move to electric vehicles is very much about my daughter's drop off at school and the studies that have been done on particulates and um, harmful emissions uh, that, that our kids breathe in. I mean, in London alone, uh, the GLA have said that, you know, 10,000 deaths a year can be attributed to poor air quality. Um, so people are dying because of poor air quality. You know, that needs to be spoken about a lot more than I think it is. And I think in the context of that, um, I think there's a misconception that that's all because of transport. It isn't. Transport's only about a third of the cause of that. Part of it is, is, is also construction, but a big part of it is boilers. Um, and it's the particulates from, from boilers and the emissions from boilers that are causing bad air quality. So I think there's a, there's, the challenge is that the government haven't got the market and the consumer market particularly to understand the connection between the way that you heat your homes and the broader environmental impact. Um, I think that's the first point I'd make. The second challenge, I think, then, is, is, is that if you haven't got that sort of confidence that your policy is going to be supported, um, if you were a politician, would you be going out with something like that right now in the middle of a uh, coronavirus pandemic? Uh, you're trying to lead the country forward. So I, I think whilst I do think there's an opportunity to be bolder, I do think that, you know, Vitamfall is very committed to actually supporting the government on the decarbonisation journey. And I think that we, we need to be careful about whacking. Um, that's not the game here. I think 600,000 heat pumps would be fantastic. Um, but we'd obviously love to do more than that. Great. Thanks, guys. So just to jump in, quickly summarise yeah. there. So what we're not seeing, though, is, is necessarily customer pull to, to you know, to request um, almost these, these propositions to be delivered into the market. So where is Demanded. where is the where's the yeah. need? Where's the demand coming from? The technology's there. Um, you seem to be certainly pretty clear on um, on why we need to do it. What what do you think needs to happen in the market? What and what's your view from Vattenfall's perspective? And Stefan, you know what's yeah. what's our view on, on on what needs what needs to happen in order to get that demand that pull into the market. I think what what needs to happen, as as you say, Mike, is um is, is dialogue with um, policymakers around the best way to engage consumers, but also to um, adopt similar stances that have been adopted in the other sectors, such as transport, around um, a hard stance on um, petrol and diesel cars. So we have examples of that coming through already. Um, for instance, a ban on new gas boilers in new builds. Um, that was previously 2025. It's been brought forward to 2023. So that's that's a positive move, and I think it sets the right um, right tone. The issue there is that um, that is a fraction of of the challenge. Um, the challenge is really the 25 million homes that we have um, and 
the, the vast majority of those um, depend on fossil fuel based um, heat. So whilst there are some good steps being made, I think it's probably not quite at the level it needs to be. Um, and, we, and we probably expect that to come through. Another, another train of policy is now around uh, getting EPC standards to a certain minimal, minimum level. So I think it's um, EPCC minimum for all homes by 2023 and then and a staggered um, in the run up to that, um, which again is interesting. But I think the, the, the interesting quirk to that um, uh, type of approach is that actually you can get a lot of the way there by just replacing your old gas boiler with a new gas boiler. Which gets you a lot of the way from EPCF to EPCC, and some <laughs> so, loft insulation, yeah. and some loft insulation, and some solar panels. So again, it's not necessarily really targeted at the problem, which is heat, which actually, as you say, Mike, does genuinely contribute. And I think the other ones are fiscal. Um, you know, it's um, I live in a house at the moment. I have a gas boiler to replace my gas boiler. It's probably you know a fraction of the cost of uh, five to ten thousand pounds to install a heat pump. Um, at the moment, the subsidies are there. Are there? There's um, the the grant coming through that will give four thousand pounds to up to four thousand pounds to to replace the system. Um, at the moment, there's also the renewable heat incentive, but that doesn't yeah. that doesn't help me with the the capital outlay <laughs> from the outset. Yeah. Um, so I think there are things in place, but I think that they're not necessarily as targeted as I would feel they need to be as as a consumer, someone that would consider decarbonising my home. And I think and I think that's the. That's the big opportunity, actually. I think when we talk about decarbonisation, we often get lost in the technology debate. You know, I think hydrogen's great. I, I think we should utilise the gas network and stick hydrogen. I think heat pumps are fantastic. I think district heating's great. And the reality is the answer is that I think all of them will have a role to play. Um, and I think we need to move the story away from the technology fight and more towards what do consumers and, and property owners need. Um, I'm moving house at the moment. Uh, Stefan, you, I think you've just you've just moved house, haven't you? Um, just moved, yeah. Yeah, I've just I'm I'm moving to a rural property. Right, there's you know a million of these up and down the country, rural properties on oil. Okay, so where do I go for an answer? There is nowhere. There's literally nowhere to go to say what's the right answer for me. What's the solution? What what, what should I do? Now I'm a relatively informed buyer. Okay, and I'm still scratching my head a little bit and going, oh, I'm not sure what the right answer is here, guys. Um, now imagine you're not me, you don't work for an energy company, you're just, you're not going to bother, you're just going to upgrade the 25 year old oil boiler with a new oil boiler because that's what everyone else in the street's got, right? Um, so that's the thing we're trying to, that's the cycle we're trying to break and to do that you have to understand me, the buyer, you have to understand the property and you have to understand that at the point that I'm buying that property and I'm taking a mortgage out, that's the time you can cover the capital cost and the capital outlay for me to put a, a low carbon heating system in. But at no point in that process does anybody say, hey, here's a, here's a solution for, for low carbon um, infrastructure on your side. Now, if you then scale that up, now let's say that I'm now a mid-sized property owner. Um, I've, I'm a, I'm a got a 20 million pound portfolio of assets, you know, I'm not hugely rich, I'm not a massive fund, but I've got some, some apartment blocks, I've got some retail outlets. I, again, I don't know anything about this. Um, Again, hundreds of thousands, millions of these up and down the country. These are the people we need to target. And I think one of the things we need to get away from is this idea that everyone should have a choice about everything everywhere. So the easiest way to decarbonize heat is to start to pick the right technology for the right area. We know, the government knows, everyone knows where district heating will work. Let's do it. It will work in densely populated urban areas. Be really clear that if you're in that densely populated urban area, you're going to get connected to district heating in the next 15 years. And then instead of providing me with 320 million of funding from central government through the Heat Networks Investment Programme, which is a fantastic initiative, I don't need your money. I want to do district heating. Give your money 
to the consumers, give your money to the building owners and incentivize them to connect to my district heating network and then give me a target to decarbonize my heat network. And if I don't, take my license away and give it to someone else. And suddenly you've got a nice little ring-fenced area where you can, you can create certainty, certainty in supply chain, certainty in choice, certainty in the commercial model that I can invest against, which means I can lower my cost of capital to invest in these kind of projects. Um, you can regulate price and tariff and consumer standards. And as a customer, my EV is sexy. I like my EV. My friends judge me on what kind of car I have. They don't give a about whether I have a boiler or a heat pump. So let's stop worrying about the consumer choice and let's start to lead a little bit more. And the same can apply, this isn't a district heating drum banging, the same can apply for hydrogen. In my current place, I live in a 1930s semi in a suburban area. This is not gonna work for district heating. So the answer for me is going to be a heat pump with an energy storage system and potentially a battery that can link to my electric vehicle, or it's going to be hydrogen in the gas grid and a hydrogen boiler, either of which, as a consumer, I would be perfectly happy to do. Just tell me what you think are the right answer is. So I think there's a real leadership opportunity here if the government can get it right to create zones and then to target incentives at the capital change that's needed to incentivize me to do something. Um, but at the end of it all, I think the, the elephant in the room that everyone needs to start to get on board with is that we have very cheap heat. And at some point it isn't going to be as cheap as it always was. You don't decarbonize heat for free. So you you're going to have to pay for it. I think what the government need to do is balance it so that it doesn't all sit on the consumer. So they don't have to have, as you described it, Stefan, that £10,000 upfront capital cost, oh, and 30% higher running costs every year. I think that would be unpalatable for everybody. So, so that's, that was a fantastic overview, Mike. So, so it sounds like advocating a more of an, you know, an incentive switch over to, over to the consumer, an incentive to, to do this, similar to what we saw, obviously, with solar. It sounds like that's what you're kind of advocating there. What, what to, just to move slightly on, the I think the other thing that's really interesting about the heat market at the moment is how disaggregated it is. Yeah. What what challenges are you seeing there? Because obviously you guys are a pretty new player in district heating. You've got some some you know big utility competitors, right? And I'm assuming you're slightly more dynamic than them. The but, but but below you guys in in the supply chain, there's going to need to be some pretty seismic some seismic changes. And what's, what is that? Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, massively. I think. Um, and again, to be honest, I'm going to take you back to my zoning thing. Um, it's much easier to build a supply chain when you know where it's going to be. Um, so if I know that the centre of Glasgow is going to have district heating, I can go and work with the 25 million subcontractors, and the. The, the wonderful thing about this opportunity, and people talk about green jobs and a, and, a, and a green market explosion, is that these jobs don't go away. You know, this is this is local energy systems maintained by local people. So you can really create fantastic local supply chains. It's not national as well. So you don't need to have these big national organizations that can roll out these solutions across multiple cities. You can actually have small sub 50 million pound family owned businesses plumbing, mechanical electrical contractors that can be reskilled and retrained, that can serve the low carbon economy. Such an amazing opportunity. You know, Vattenfall as, a, as, a, as an energy services provider can sit in the middle. We can, we can manage the risk, we can put the investment on the table, and we can develop the projects and help to de-risk them. But the other part we want to play is we want to work with those local suppliers to then upskill them so that they can then come in and maintain this low carbon equipment. That's true whether you do district heating 
before you do individual heat pumps in every every building. We're going to have to upskill uh, the local workforce. And that's that's really interesting. And um, and obviously Vattenfall is a uh, is a major European player. And you're you know you you run you've yeah. been running district heating assets. Um, for probably longer than a century, right? 120 years, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the statistic around your, I think your Berlin asset, which has survived two world wars, yeah. which, um, which I think is, is remarkable. Separation and reunification, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think the UK market is obviously at a you know, far earlier stage. It's, it's a nascent market and a lot needs to change and a lot hopefully will change over the coming um, 10, 20, 30 years. But I'm just wondering what learnings we could, if any, we can take from, from European markets and how, how they have um, adopted it and that's partly linked to their history right they don't have the same um, dependency on or, or, or integration of gas as, as we have had but i just wonder what learnings um, i mean the skills aren't the, the, the skills aren't remarkably they're not radically complicated right I, I think one of the biggest things you get when you have a bigger market is you can disaggregate the supply chain a little bit so you can build specialisms so in the UK, what you typically have is one or one organization that does the design, build and the operation and maintenance for, for low carbon solutions. And that means that they kind of they bundle all of this stuff, all of the maintenance. So you've got the same organization doing your maintenance of your heat pumps and your low carbon equipment and technology through to your pumps that move the hot water around the pipe through to going and working with customers, maintaining their heat interface units in their apartments. And, and actually, the reality is you don't need that. Um, so you can disaggregate that and you can bring specialists in. And by bringing specialists in, what you do is you can create an opportunity for those smaller businesses that say, well, OK, I can't possibly have the breadth to be able to do all of these things. But I can certainly specialize in, for example, a, a boiler maintenance, um, a small boiler maintenance business that there's you know, thousands of those up and down the country. They are absolutely perfect to be able to go and do heat interface unit maintenance um, and, and, and they can do some work on pumps as well. So, there's, you know, you, you can disaggregate it a little bit. I think that's very important. The second thing, to be honest, is you need to, um, if you look at what we're going to be building in the UK, I think it's important to learn from learn from markets like Denmark, actually, interestingly, where they've moved to slightly different designs of systems. Um, if we design systems that are not large central plant, which is exactly what we're, we're proposing to do in the UK, where you have multiple points of generation, um, you're not looking at a power station that needs to have power station processes. You're looking at, you know, sub 20 megawatts of generation dotted around, and that's much easier to maintain and much easier to service for a smaller contractor you don't need the large scale contractor with a larger balance sheet to be able to take on the risk of operating some of those kinds of things. So for me, a lot of this is about the partnership that you need to create between the community, the energy company, the energy services company that comes in and manages the whole process. And then the community, again, the suppliers, the people that can then work on it and, and deliver those services. And it's the, it's the partnerships that you need to develop and they evolve over time. And again, that's so much easier to do if I know that in East London, I'm going to be building a heat network for the next 30 years. So suddenly I can invest ahead of need in technical colleges, apprenticeship programs, partnerships with universities. I can address the skills gap because it's worth me spending my money on it. What I don't want to do is spend a lot of money addressing the skills gap and then have the government U-turn in five years time and decide that they want to stick in a bunch of individual heat pumps with no, no district heating system. And, that, and, and so that certainty means that everybody wins. We've got a challenge battling the counterfactual right so gas is cheap and what you're saying is we need a, an incentive and need something's going to drive demand in the market um, and also that heat suppliers have got a real job to do to work with the supply chain and upskill the local workforce to to deliver this at scale i think it sounds like vanfall 
are doing some really interesting um, work in this space and definitely are you know market leader market leading the the, the call to action to really drive innovation in this market. I think if we could just end on getting both of your insights into that, what 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 is it that you would like to really leave our listeners with? So no, I think this is really interesting, and I, Mike, definitely, what, I agree with what you're saying around. There's no one size fits all um, solution to to the decarbonisation of heat problem in the UK, and it would need district heating in certain places, um, heat pumps certainly to be far more widespread, and, and probably hydrogen a small or some role in um in that in that mix i, I think i'd just like to go back into the um the problem of that there's probably the largest bit of the market the retrofit domestic market mm-hmm. that um, that needs to be tackled um and 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 think of even just myself as a potential buyer and just back to the analogy of i uh, to, to decarbonize my home i would need to replace my gas boiler with a, with a heat pump uh, and what i'm faced with is a is a sort of nearly 10 grand cost um i can Going forward, I can get help with the capital outlay. I think what's what's probably missing is some financing solutions around that, which I think is probably a gap in the market around how this how how solutions are financed for consumers to make them more appealing. Is helping with the capex problem, and and helping with the um, I guess the basic economics against gas, the gas counterfactual. And on capex, there are interesting things like we probably need to get the the solution to be cheaper. I think on on gas, what's interesting is you mentioned it earlier. Um, renewable electricity is is levied because we've built lots of wind farms and solar farms, et cetera. So there's an extra 20% on our bills. Gas, the gas bill doesn't attract any of those types of levies. So it's it's always going to be cheaper um, to fuel the home yeah. with gas. And I think that can change um, potentially. So just I'm just keen for your thoughts and maybe some of the more sort of particular ways that you know you can help your average domestic homeowner and and then how yeah, how do we help that problem? I think the, um, I mean, I've read a lot online and on, on LinkedIn as, as, as we all do, right? There's a, there's a call for a, um, a carbon tax, carbon pricing. Um, you know, we need carbon pricing to, to send a clear signal. I think we need to be very careful about how we do carbon pricing uh, and how we implement carbon pricing. I, I fundamentally agree with it. I think it's the right way to go, but I do think that if you get it wrong, it can be incredibly damaging to the uh, most vulnerable in society. Um, and the thing that's not talked about, I think, enough in, in, in certainly the debate about electricity um, with, with the, frankly, the, the, you know, the, the painting of the energy companies as the big bad energy companies that, uh, you know, are, are, are charging ridiculous amounts of money, making ridiculous profits. I mean, the, the average profit on a domestic energy bill is not high. The majority of the reason for the price rise, as you brightly targeted, is, is the decarbonisation that's happened in the power sector. And that is levied and it's paid for by the end customer. So I would plead with um, policymakers to please not do the same thing with heat. Um, and I think that we need to really look at who who gets value from this, right? Who gets value from decarbonised buildings, not heat, decarbonised buildings. Um, the majority of buildings in the UK are not owned by people. They're owned by companies that have great balance sheets and property portfolios that are worth a lot of money. And actually, interestingly, what you're starting to see is that those property investors are waking up to the fact that their properties need to be decarbonized. So this could be true of, of a, um, a mortgage supplier to people like you and me, or a large institutional property investor that owns just huge portfolios of properties, commercial and residential up and down cities, up and down the UK, right? Um, 
And I think that the value that should be created here is actually in the improved resilience of that asset valuation and the longer term, the, the future proofing of that asset value. That's what you're starting to see. You're starting to see it in the valuation of those funds and ultimately the stock price of the companies that own those funds. That's the way this gets solved. It doesn't get solved by making my granny pay for it. That's a great point. And actually, we're seeing a lot of momentum in that space around um, the regulations uh, and reporting requirements on financial institutions in relation to climate change or climate change um, related risk in their portfolio. So suddenly these organisations are having to report on this stuff that they weren't having to do five, ten years ago. And it requires analysis um, and quite detailed analysis in many places. Um, and and robust submissions around what is the um, physical and transitional risk in my portfolio, and it's being scrutinised. And and those institutions are actually moving capital in a way that moves it away from the riskier side of their portfolio into um, the the side of the portfolio that is more aligned with um, climate change pathways. So Paris alignment to one point um, five degrees, for instance. And right. and this is a major theme. And and it's a it's, it's right you call this out because actually it's um. It's happening more and more now, and the coming years will become a major theme, and that could start to dictate some of that capital. Price. I think it's huge. I think it's a huge swing. Now, let's not let's be honest. Like, still, eighty percent of the of the property ownership market doesn't care about this. As soon as it's palatable, as soon as it's considered to be a socialised cost that's acceptable to take, then it happened. Double glazing in the seventies and eighties is exactly the same challenge. Cost of introducing double glazing in every building was really prohibitive. Everyone kicked and screamed. All the, all the house builders said it was a nightmare and it was going to make their businesses fold. It didn't. Funnily enough, it was just absorbed in the value of the of the assets that they sold. And I, I think that's where we need to get more sophisticated in the way that we fund it, which is why, frankly, I do think incentives should be should be given to property owners, not to energy companies. So don't flow the capital that you need to do to decarbonize heat through me. Flow it through property, throw it through investment, flow it through refinancing property. When I get it, when I get when I get a new mortgage, hey sir, you've got a new mortgage. Would you like to upgrade your energy system? We know that your boiler's 15 years old. They don't even ask. It's a very simple thing to do. So lots of opportunities to 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 I think help with the capex challenge, which was your first question, right? And then the second thing, which is which is the opex challenge, that links to carbon pricing. OK, that links to carbon pricing, because effectively, if you switch from a gas based system to an electric based system, you, you know, going up significantly in cost per unit, um, you know, from sort of five, four, five, six P up to 14, 15 P per kilowatt hour. So really big swing for a consumer. You will get three, four units of, of heat out for every one unit of electricity that you put in. Um, so you get an efficiency gain in the system. But these systems are going to be a little bit more expensive to operate. Um, so I think we need to look at things like vulnerable customer tariffs. Um, uh, I think that actually as an industry, if you create some certainty behind this, we could move to a services model. I don't, for example, pay for usage on my mobile phone like I did in the uh, mid 90s, I say mid 90s. I didn't have a mobile phone in the mid 90s. Um, I think I was about 16, uh, late 90s. Um, uh, and now I just pay a flat rate every month. And actually, the biggest argument we're having about is how much data I get, right? How much data do you get for your fixed fee? Well, why can't we take the same approach to heating someone's apartment? Actually, what you want is you want your apartment to be warm and you want to have a hot shower when you need it to be, right? And yet you don't, most people don't want to have an app on their phone manipulating these things. So, so actually, the way that I think we can control cost for consumers is by moving them more towards a service model where they pay a fixed rate to get a fixed level of service and a fixed level of comfort, which actually a lot of people will be much, much happier with. 
So in summary, what we're saying is the who pays question. So <laughs> it's, that's, it's a great, it's a great, great point. Uh, just to, yeah, to, to reiterate what Stefan's saying there is a really great point. Incentives should be given to the property developers. Ultimately, you know, property developers, property owners, um, not utilities um, like yourself. Right, um, because ultimately they're the ones that are going to get the asset value from this, and you know the share price value from this. Carbon pricing is going to be needed to um, unlock value in in the heat supply chain, effectively to help us battle the counterfactual of gas. Really good point from Stefan there as well around um, around levies um, mm -hmm. on electricity versus gas. Um, not something I thought of before. Um, and then new customer tariffs, tariffs and service models are going to be needed. So we're basically touching on heat as a service there. Um, it's something that we're seeing happen in um, slowly in ele electricity markets, um, but could doing that faster in heat um, help us decarbonize heat in the UK? That was a really great conversation, guys. Thank you both for your time. And um, I think the point that Stefan made at the end there around um, TCFD and the link to decarbonisation of heat, I think that's going to be increasingly interesting and maybe that's a topic that we can um, pick up maybe another time on a future podcast. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with our latest podcast releases and hear more from Baringa and our energy innovators. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast or would like to learn more about Baringa, please email us at energypodcast at beringa.com or visit our website linked in the podcast bio.